Um, this is your first time here this morning. I just want to say welcome. I'm grateful to have you here with us today. My name is Pat Malloy. I'm the lead pastor. And, uh, and if we have not had the opportunity to, to connect, make sure you come up and, and just introduce yourself. Um, I would love just to be able to connect with you. And uh, it really is a great day to be in church this morning. We're beginning a new series today. And so I'm grateful that you are here as, as we kind of kick this series off. And, and where I want to begin, like, usually I'll, I'll give some kind of like introduction or some thoughts. I actually want to dive into some text right away, and then we'll kind of come, come back. So we're, I'm going to go a little bit out of order from what I would normally typically do. But, but where we're going to begin this morning is actually in the book of Exodus. Um, and, and the book of Exodus is the story about how God led his people out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land, the, the land that God had promised to Abraham uh, way, way before. And, and, and so just to kind of catch everybody up so we're all on the same page, and it is a familiar story, but for those that maybe don't know, that the Israelites, they had been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. That, and, and God, he, he raised up Moses to help lead his people out of Egypt, to lead uh, the Israelites to the, the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. And, and through a series of miracles, God demonstrated his, his power and his might uh, to, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians. And, and finally, Pharaoh agreed to let the, the Israelites go, to let them leave Egypt. And, and after they had left, he actually has a change of heart. He changes his mind and goes after and pursues the, the Israelites. And, and, and there's the, just kind of this showdown where, where the Israelites, they, they come up to the Red Sea in, in front of them. The Israelites are pursuing behind them. And, and, and we probably all you know, are familiar with this story that, that God opens up the Red Sea. The, the Israelites walk through on dry ground to the other side and then the, the Red Sea is closed back up over the, the pursuing Egyptians. And, and once they make it to the other side, Moses' older sister Miriam, she kind of leads them in this impromptu worship service uh, of just celebrating how good God had been to all of them. And, and, and once, the, once they were freed, once they had passed through the Red Sea, Moses actually leads them to a place called Mount Sinai. I, I actually have a, a map here that kind of shows the the, the Exodus route. And Mount Sinai is actually down here towards the tip of the, the Sinai Peninsula that the Moses leads them to. Um, sometimes it's called Horeb, the mountain of God, you know, a, a bunch of different um, names. And, and this is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, that's, that's you know, not, not necessarily the aspect that I want to focus on today about God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Where I actually want to take some time this morning to talk about is what was happening with the people while Moses was up on the mountain. That, that Moses, he, he goes up onto to Mount Sinai while the rest of the Israelites, they're kind of camped out at the base of the mountain. And Scripture records that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights while he was receiving the law from Yahweh. And, and the Israelites, they, they, were, they were a very interesting bunch. As you read through the, the book of, of Exodus, that they had barely even like stepped foot outside of Egypt when they start complaining uh, against Moses and complain about how hungry they are and how thirsty they are. And they, they were questioning God's provision uh, in their lives. And, and so while they're up on, uh, while, excuse me, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites, they start to get a little bit impatient. They, they, start, they start to kind of like murmur and worry. And so where we're going to begin is in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, again, God, God is, is giving Moses the law. He's given Moses the Ten Commandments here. 
they gathered around Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And so they, they come to Aaron and they're like, all right, we want you to create a God for us. Create a God that, or gods that are going to lead us right now in this moment. And, and to us today, that probably sounds pretty ridiculous. Like, like you're thinking, what in the world are, are, they, are they doing? Like Mo, Moses had, had just gone away, just been up on the mountain for, for just like a not all that long a time, several weeks. And they approach Aaron and they demand that he make a God, he, that they make an idol to lead them. Now, now, trying to give the Israelites the benefit of the doubt and trying to paint them in the best light possible here, like, I, I want to try to put ourselves in their shoes and, and in their mindset for just a moment. That they had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And, and when God had revealed himself to, to Abraham and established his covenant with Abraham, it was not all that long before they were enslaved in Egypt. And, and so, like, the, this whole idea of a, of a monotheistic God that you couldn't visibly see what was a, a fairly foreign idea to, to most of, of the Israelites. And, and while they were in Egypt, they were immersed in a, polythe, a polytheistic culture, a polytheistic environment where, where they had multiple gods for, for virtually anything. There, there was the god of the sun, the god of war, the god of hunting, the god of the river, the god of fertility, the god of grain. But not only that, the pharaohs in Egypt were also considered deities themselves. They, they were considered gods themselves. The, the one who was, who was in charge, the one who was leading the country, leading the people, was considered a god himself. And one of the things about, like, virtually, if not all, Near Eastern religions is that their gods were depicted as some sort of physical, tangible object. Like, if, if you think about, like, some of the Egyptian statues that, that we've all seen, and, you know, there, there's pictures of them through, through Egypt, and, and, you know, like, we have some pictures um, of, of one here. Like, there, there's all different pictures of just, like, Egyptian, you know, statues uh, uh, devoted to, some devoted to Pharaoh, some devoted to some of the other gods. And, and, and what they would do is they would worship these physical objects, these physical representations of of their gods. That's what the people would worship. And, and so trying to be gracious and trying to be generous to, to the Israelite people here, they were asking Aaron for pretty much the only thing they knew. All right, we don't know what happened to Moses. This has taken a long time. Make us a God that we can worship. Make us a God that will lead us right now in this moment, because that's what, that's what they knew. That was they, what they were exposed to. And Aaron actually gives in to this peer pressure in, in verse 2. It says, so Aaron, Aaron said, they, they approached Aaron, they wanted him to make this, this idol, this God for them. And so Aaron said, all right, take your gold rings from your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, O oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron, he saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, tomorrow is going to be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. 
Now, like, you can see how Aaron was swayed by the people. Like, he, he created, he gave in, he created this golden calf, this kind of, like, representation of a God for them. And, and they were all excited about, about this. And, and so, like, all right, hey, people are liking this. I'm going to build an altar, too. And, hey, we're going to have a feast tomorrow about it as well. And, and so, up on Mount Sinai, Moses, he actually catches wind of what's going on about what's going on down below in, in the mountain. And, and to say he was displeased would be a little bit of an understatement. I, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Key and Peel sketch about the substitute teacher, which is amazing, by the way. Like, there, there's, a, there's a great meme about this that if you can actually put that up there if we have it. Like, like the, the, I, I imagine this is kind of how Moses was thinking. Like, you done messed up, A.A. Ron. And so Moses comes down off the mountain, and in verse 19, it says, when, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets. God had given him these stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them, and he threw them to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that, was, that had made, they had made, excuse me, and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. You're thinking, all right, I don't even understand what that, what that even means. Like, I, it, there, there's actually, there's a passage in Numbers chapter 5 that talks about an adulterous woman would, would often be made to, to drink a, a bitter drink made, that had dust from the floor of the tabernacle mixed in with it. And so, like, there's a, there's a parallel between the adulterous woman and, and what, what the what the Israelite people were doing uh, of having like an adulterous heart towards God, and, and, but I'm not, I won't go into all of it right now. But, but, I, but I share this with you because what, what I find incredibly interesting about this is, is that it might look different for us today than it did for the Israelites several thousand years ago, but we're pretty good at creating sacred cows. We're pretty good at creating golden calves of our own in our own lives. We, we might not melt down our, our earrings and our jewelry and, and create a, a, a golden cow of some sort, some kind of golden cow for us to worship, but we do have things in our lives that we do worship. We do have things in our lives that kind of can take the place of God. And, and so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to go cow tipping in this series. Like, we're, we're going to take a look at, at some of the sacred cows that we have in our lives? What, what are some of those golden calves, those, those sacred cows that we have? And hopefully be like Moses, coming to a place of tipping them over, smashing them, turning them, turning them so that we can live the life of freedom that God wants us to have. Because, because that's one of the things that sacred cows do. They actually put us in bondage in a way. They take the place of God. They become a substitute for God. And, and God, he wants us to be free. In fact, Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And, and so I believe this is going to be like a, a, a fun series. And I'm praying and believing that for some of us, we're, we're going to break off some of those, those sacred cows, some of those golden calves that maybe we've been holding on to in our lives. Now, thinking about this story, one of the things I find just kind of humorous and a little bit ironic about this passage that, that we shared about Aaron and the golden calf is that the first two commandments that God is giving to Moses up on the mountain are the very commandments that Aaron and the Israelites are breaking down at the base of the mountain. 
Like the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And the Israelites, they were like, all right, Moses, make us a God. Make us a God that will lead us, that we can worship. And the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself any idols, any images. No, don't, don't make any physical representation of God that you're going to bow down and that you're going to worship. Essentially, God is saying, I don't want you to worship any created thing. I want you to worship the one who created it all to begin with. The, the very thing that God is telling Moses, I don't want my people to be doing this was the very thing that God, or that they were doing while God was inscribing these commandments on the stone tablets. And I mentioned this a few moments ago that the sad reality is for, for each of us, we have different, different idols, we have different golden calves, different sacred cows in, in our own lives. And even though they might look different, we all, we all have them. And so for the sake of, of this series, I'm going to kind of like give a, a this is my definition of, of what I'm going to call a sacred cow for this series. And, and, and so I, I'm kind of going to refer to a sacred cow as, as a thought, a belief, a tradition that takes a higher place in our life than, than it should. So, something, sometimes we place it higher than God in our own lives. For some of these sacred cows, some of these golden calves, we're aware of them. Some of them might just be operating unconsciously in our lives as well. And, and so where I want to begin with this series, what we're going to be talking about this morning when it comes to, 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 to idols, to golden calves, sacred cows, is something that every single one of us, just, just by the nature of, of when we live and where we live, that, that we all deal with in one way or another. And so to, to set this up, I'm going to take, I'm going to share, it's, it's a bit of a longer passage from Luke's gospel about an encounter that Jesus has with a woman. And so, I, it, like I said, it's a longer passage, but I want you to follow along. It's from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. And Luke records, he says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then just Jesus told him this story, that a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home... You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and and they are many, they've been forgiven. So she she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. 
Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table, the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In, in Mark's gospel, he shares this account. And he gives a little bit more detail where he says that when, when she poured out this perfume on Jesus, like the people that were standing around, they were, they, were, they were angry, they were indignant because this, it was a rare, expensive perfume. In fact, the, they said that the, the cost of that bottle was worth an entire year's wages. This was not some cheap perfume, cheap cologne that she was using. And, and this story illustrates probably one of the most beautiful pictures of worship that I can find anywhere in Scripture. That the, this woman, she knew her sins. She knew her past. She, she knew that because of her past and because of her lifestyle, because she was a woman, she really should not have been in the same room as Jesus. And yet here she was, overwhelmed by being in his presence. Like she, she couldn't help but just, just tears flooding down her face onto Jesus' feet. She's, she's wiping his feet with her hair. She pours out this, this expensive perfume. Like I, I can close my eyes and, and I can just visually picture what's happening here in this moment. That, that this woman who had no earthly right to be here and yet was freely giving something that was so valuable to her. And as I was reading this passage this week, something came to mind. I felt like God was kind of like checking my heart about something. So in, in this story, who would I want to be in this story? If, if, if Pat Malloy was transported there, who would I want to be in this story? Would, would, I, would I want to be the, the broken woman who knows how far short she has fallen? Who recognizes who Jesus is, recognizes what Jesus has done for her, and, and is just pouring out and lavishing worship and love on him? Or would I be one of the men who are standing around watching this unfold, shaking my head, wagging my finger, tisking, complaining to Jesus, I don't like this. I don't like what she's doing. Like, who, who would I rather be? Or maybe the harder question is, who do my actions more line up with? Not just who do I want to be. If I looked at my life right now, if I, if I looked at myself in the mirror, who do my actions more line up with? Am I more like someone who's unabashedly worshiping my Savior? Or am I somebody who's complaining? Because I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like what's happening right now in this moment. That's not how it's supposed to be done. And I share this passage because I feel like in, in, in some ways it's a microcosm of where we are as a society today. Like this, this American consumeristic mindset that, that has invaded and infiltrated virtually every aspect of our lives. This consumeristic mindset. Like, like we are so blessed to live in the place and the day and age that, that we are. Like we're, we're a church of, of just of regular folks just regular run-of-the-mill people. But even, even like our modest means is a level of wealth and blessing that most people throughout history couldn't even fathom. Like even if you live in a, in a small house or a small apartment, like to most people throughout history, that would have seemed like an, a mansion. I, I went on Walmart's website and I looked up deodorant. 
there's 25 pages of deodorant that you can just flip through. Like, not 25 different types. 25 pages of deodorant that you can just scroll through, flip through. Like, think about that for a moment. Like, how, how crazy that is. Like, if we get sick, we can go to the doctor. And if we don't like what the doctor says, we can go get a second opinion. We, we can go to a different doctor who's going to tell us maybe something we want to hear instead. We, like, we, we have an endless number of television channels, news outlets, websites, that if we don't want to hear an opinion that we don't like, like, it's really easy for us to create a bubble around ourselves so that we don't ever have to be challenged by anything, that everybody agrees with what we already think. Like, we have virtually everything. Like, you pull out your phone. Like, we have virtually everything at our fingertips. I could go on Amazon today. I can order something and have it delivered tomorrow. Today, well, yeah. And if I don't like it, if the color is not right, I can just send it back. Like, like I, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. Like, it's, it's absolutely incredible the day in which we find ourselves, the, where we live today. And it's an amazing blessing. But there's some drawbacks to that as well. And in fact, I want to show you a brief clip from an interview that Conan O'Brien did with Louis C.K. a number of years back. Some of you may have seen this clip before that I think perfectly illustrates this. It, the clip is it's a little older. It's like 10 years, a little over 10 years old. And, and I'm just going to give a disclaimer. I by no means endorse Louis C.K.'s lifestyle nor type of humor. But he's spot on with this right here. So if you can show this clip for us. It's really funny. <laughs> I, I <laughs> oh, we might have to come back to it if we can figure out what to do with the, with the sound back. Oh, it's so good. I'm, hope, I'm hoping we can come back to it. But all right, but I'll, but I'll, I'll, maybe they can give me a thumbs up if we think we got it. But I, I, I share that because what he's describing is really kind of where I see where we are as, as a society, where we are as, as a church today. Like we, we've been so grown and become so accustomed to having what we want, how we want it, when we want it, where we want it. That in the end, I think in some ways it, it, it kind of taints our, our view of the world, about how we view others, how we view God, how we view the church. Like in some ways, we've, we've been spoiled. And it's an amazing, like it, the, the blessings that we have and that we get to experience, it, they're, they're amazing things. But there's drawbacks to it. In, in some ways, it, it reminds me of, of the Rolling Stones when Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. Like, we, we have more entertainment options today than at any point in human history, and yet we're probably more bored than we've ever been. We have more options to eat healthier than ever before, and yet we're more overweight and unhealthier than ever before. We, we have more time for leisure and recreation than at any time in human history. And yet our stress and our anxiety levels are off the charts. Like for, for marriages, like there are books and resources and counseling and conferences. And yet still nearly half of marriages end in divorce. Like I, like I could go on and on. Like we, we have so much 
We have so much. And yet I don't think it's producing the results we would hope that we would want it to produce. Like, and and there's, there's an observation I have about this. This is my opinion, so you can feel free to disagree with me. But, but like having choices, having these options, having the resources, having 25 pages of deodorant options for us, like it can be a good thing. But having these choices alone, having, having things how, when, where we want them is not producing the results that we would like to see in our lives. Like I really am. I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for the day and age that, that we do live in. Yet elevating the consumer, elevating the, the individual wants and desires to, hetch, to such a high and venerated spot has definitely become a golden calf. It's definitely become a sacred cow in our society and, and in all of our lives, too. My, my daughter, Cadence, she was in a um, performance at the Wagon Wheel Theater. She, they were doing Princess What's-Her-Name. It, it was, it's, a, it's a great show. They, they did a great job with it. And after the performance on Friday night, the entire cast and family and everything, they, they went to Culver's. And Culver, they were completely overwhelmed. Like, I, I mean, like, they had, they, like, closing the store that evening, they had only four employees. I mean, like, we, we ordered custard, and it was about 35 minutes before we received it. Like, I mean, they, they were just completely overwhelmed by the number of people that were there. And, but there were people, especially people in the drive-thru, that were screaming at the employees there for how slow the service was. And, and I felt terrible for them. Like, they, they were doing the best they could you know, everybody from the cast of the show came and screwed this up for everybody else. Like, they, they were doing the best they could. And yet people were just, like, irate with them. At times I've been at the airport, maybe you have been too, and, and you hear about, like, a flight getting canceled, like maybe at the gate next to you. Clive, I hope I'm not talking about you here. I, and, you, and you just see somebody, like, they're just screaming at the at the lady at the desk who's trying to help you get where you want to go. All right, it's not her fault. And yet people just lose their mind over these kinds of things. At our dentist office, I, I, we had family dentist appointments. And, and, you know, they make you fill out, like, your, your dental history and your, you know, health history. Is there anything new that we need to be aware of? We had to sign... What they, they called it a kindness policy. I, I'm not even making that up. Essentially saying, all right, we reserve the right to deny you service if you don't treat our employees well. <laughs> yes, you can. I, I say yes. <laughs> and now, this is, this is not a, a message about the golden rule and treating other people as, as we want to be treated, although that's obviously important, but, but I think these are, are symptoms of a much bigger problem in our culture, that it's about me. It's about my thoughts and my wants and my money and my desire and my time. And we lose sight of everybody and everything else because we've elevated me. We've elevated ourselves. We've made ourselves into a golden calf, into a sacred cow. And I think what we're seeing and what we're experiencing, that, that, like, we laugh because we've all seen people do this. Hopefully, we've not been the ones actually doing it ourselves, but we've seen it happen. 
And I think what we, what we see, what we're experiencing is, is a natural consequence of what happens when we make ourselves the center of our world instead of God. I, I, I go back to, to the story I shared at the beginning about the woman with the alabaster jar, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. In that moment, Jesus was the center of, of her world. She wasn't concerned about what anybody else thought of her. She wasn't concerned about her reputation or her status, how she was going to be perceived. Jesus was her focus in that moment. But the men standing around offering their, their hot take on what was happening in this moment, like, like I can almost imagine like a, a, a tweet going out by Simon the Pharisee. In fact, I, did Simon the Pharisee actually write a tweet? I think he might have. Uh, at legalism rockstar, cannot believe what this sinful woman is doing, pouring out expensive perfume, making a fool of herself. Jesus should rebuke her and send her away. Hashtag waste of money. Hashtag she should know better. Hashtag no shame. Hashtag not my savior. Hashtag legalism rocks. Like, <laughs> like the, they're, they're saying, all right, this isn't how it's supposed to be done. This isn't what we do. That's not how I want this thing to go. And, and in the end, the men standing around watching this woman worshiping Jesus, they missed out. Like they, they were observing one of the most beautiful expressions of worship that's ever taken place, and they missed it because it wasn't how they thought it was supposed to be done. She's not the right kind of person to be in here with us. She's wasting this perfume. We, we could sell this and give, give that money to the poor. Like, do you see her just like bawling and carrying on like that? I mean, pull yourself together, woman. And their preferences and their prejudices, their opinions, their, their beliefs actually ended up robbing them from observing and, and perhaps participating in, in this amazing intimate worship moment. I feel like that's what happens. Like when, when, we, when we let ourselves become the center of our world, that we lose sight of what's actually going on around. When we make ourselves the center of our world, when we have this consumeristic mindset about, about life, about church, about work, about marriage, what's in it for me, when we elevate ourselves, we actually push God further down the list. I want to I kind of close sharing a, a final thought with you and, and actually kind of confessing, telling on myself a little bit. Uh, six or seven years ago, our, our family was on, we were on vacation, and there, there's a pastor that I really looked up to at the time. He's, he's got the big church. If I said his name, everybody would likely recognize who he was, and, and, and his, his church was actually just a little bit out of the way as we were driving home. And so it was going to be like a, a one-hour detour for us to just kind of go around, visit that church. And we were going to be driving home on a Sunday morning. We thought, oh, hey, this will be really cool, be able to go see, you know, see this church. And, and I, don't, I don't recall all of the, the details of, of how we found out, but somehow the day before we found out that the pastor was not going to be there that day, that there was going to be somebody else who was going to be speaking that morning. 
And my thought was, well, forget that. <laughs> I, I'm not driving an hour out of my way to see some, you know, schlub, you know, <laughs> sharing the Word of God. I, <laughs> and, and so much so that, like, we skipped out on church altogether. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not doing that. And, and as we were driving home, God really convicted me about that. Say, so like, okay, you were planning to go to this church, why? To hear this man speak? To hear this guy who's got a big name and a big platform and he's super funny and charismatic and, and all this? But if he's not there, you're not going to go? Is that the reason you're going to church, Pat? And I had to confront some kind of ugly truths about myself. Like, as, as much as I decry Christian consumerism, you know, being like Burger King, having it, having it your way, as, as much as that bothers me, I was giving in to those same consumeristic impulses. That my motives were wrong. Like, in that moment, I was making me the center of my world, not God. What, like, what, what, what could I have missed out on? Had we gone, had we driven that hour out of the way, and who knows? Maybe it would just have been like this, this amazing life-altering encounter with God, but because that pastor who I looked up to and I really wanted to hear, I wanted to see him in person, wasn't there, forget that. And I share that just to kind of challenge all of us. Like, are, are, are we making ourselves the center of our Christian walk? Are we making ourselves the focal point of our faith journey? Or are we making God the center of it? Like, am I elevating my thoughts and my preferences and, and, and what I think, how I want things to go and things to be, am I elevating those things higher than they ought to be? Like, am I, am I walking out of service? And I do this as the pastor of our church. Like, you know what? Worship was okay today. I didn't really care for that one song. Like, are you kidding me? Like, like how, how petty and small is that? And yet I find myself doing it from time to time. Thinking about, all right, what can I get out of church instead of what, what, what do I bring? Being like the, the men that were standing around the woman who with the alabaster jar, critiquing what was going on, being upset about what was going on, and yet missing what God was doing right there in that moment. She wasn't looking to receive anything. She came to offer her praise and her worship and her love to the one that sacrificed everything for her. Sometimes we need to recalibrate our mindset. knocking myself down a few pegs, making sure I'm not the center of, of my world. I'm not the center of my faith walk and my, my faith journey. And I'll tell you, when, when we can do that, like when, when we can recalibrate how, how we think, when we, we, when we can recognize those moments where, yeah, you know what, I, I'm, I'm operating in a very consumeristic mindset here. I'm thinking things from a very consumeristic, me-centered approach. 
Like when we can recognize that and, and when we can... When we can put ourselves in the mindset of the sinful woman with the alabaster jar, she wasn't the center of her world in that moment. Jesus was. It changes. It changes how, it changes how we worship. It changes how we interact with God. It changes how we interact with other people. And it provides, it provides freedom. It provides joy that some of us are just missing. And so this week, I, I just, my, my challenge, my question for everybody this week, like, would you be willing just to kind of do a, a, maybe just a little personal inventory? About what, you know, what are the things that go through your mind, whether it comes to church, whether it comes to the things of God, maybe it's at work, dealing with your kids, coworkers, you know, finances, whatever it might be. And just truly asking God and say, God, like, kind of what David said, search me. Know my heart. If, if, there, if there's anything in my life that should not be there, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you permission. Recalibrate me. I want to tip over the, this, this golden calf, this, this sacred cow of me-centered consumerism. God, I want you to be the center. I want you to be the focus. So if you would, would you bow your heads? I'm going to pray right now for us. Lord, God, we love you so very much. And God, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the grace and the patience that you share and you show us, Lord. And, and God, for, for every one of us in this room, Lord, as we read that story about, about the woman who is kneeling at your feet, washing your feet with her tears, wiping it with her hair, pouring out that perfume on you, Lord. God, we want to have that kind of mindset, Lord. Not, not, not a mindset where we look, all right, what can I get out of, out of this relationship? What can I get out of this interaction? What can I get out of church? What can I get out of work? But God, how, do, how can I give? How can I give of myself? How, how can I, God, make you the center and the focal point of my life, not me? And Lord, as, as we kind of do that self-inventory this week, God, I pray that you would open our, our eyes to see and that you would help us to, to do exactly what I just said, to recalibrate, maybe refocus, get put you at that center and that focal point in our lives, Lord. We want to tip the, this idea, this mindset of, of consumerism, me-centric mindset, Lord. We, we don't want that to be who we are. Lord, I pray for my church family this morning. God, that you would search us, that you would know us, that there's any anxious thing inside of us, Lord, that you would reveal that to us. And Lord, we, we just hand it over to you and ask you to help remake us in your image, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, I come before you this morning uh, to confess something to you. And I'm embarrassed uh, because I think what I'm going to confess will change the way that you think about me. I keep in my car and in my desk drawer a hairbrush and a can of hairspray. 
My wife was over here sweating when I got up here and said, I have something to confess before you. But I am a very vain man. I am. And Katie knows this. She's like, oh, yeah, every, every, every day before, uh, before I go to work, I, I, I say, does this match? Is this good? Is this, will it be an embarrassment to you if I leave the house looking like this? In, uh, in the 1500s, uh, the mirror was invented, and it changed our lives. Because before that, we didn't necessarily, unless we looked in the water, we saw a poor reflection. We, we didn't know what we looked like in comparison to other people. But now, <laughs> we can look in the mirror, and I can see myself and I can look at the person over there and I can think, well, I don't look as good as that person. What can I do to change? And we do that with all of life, really. Uh, I, it's interesting that I, I didn't know what Pat was going to be talking about this morning, but uh, when, when he began the, the whole uh, sermon and here, is the, here are the Israelites who create a calf to represent an image of God. And one of the commandments that Moses brings down from the mountain is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not create for yourself a graven image. Why? Why is that significant? Because God created images of him already. Us. We are a picture of him. And any time we look around and we compare ourselves, make comparisons to other people. We look at the way that we have lived our life and we compare ourselves to somebody else and we think we are not worthy. We have erected an image before us. We have put something else in the place of God. And as Pat was talking about, we're not looking at him. We're not taking upon his character it's just a couple chapters later in Exodus chapter 34 after Moses had smashed those tablets and he goes back up on the mountain and he carves them. God says here, write these down. You carve them on the tablets. And then the Lord says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And this truth is conveyed throughout the entire narrative of the text, all the way up to what Jesus does for us. And he wants us to know that his love for us is abounding. Another way that you can say it, it's loyal love. It's love that doesn't change based on our appearance or our actions, never changes. It doesn't even change no matter how I feel about myself when I look in the mirror. And shame on us, shame on us if we are like those, those people that were in that room. And I, I've had some conversations with some fathers this week who have talked about the way their children feel about church and they're finding belonging and community outside because we've put up barriers that keep people from feeling like they belong. You belong here. 
Jesus said to his disciples, I've eagerly, I've eagerly wanted to have this meal with you. And he knew what the, who they were. And he invites you too. He invites all of us, even me, with my hairbrush and my hairspray <laughs> and my vanity. And he reminds us all that he is abounding in love. Amen? We share communion together as a family. And everyone that's here is invited to the table. You're welcome here. Uh, and, and so as, after I pray and uh, we sing, please feel free to come forward and uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for reminding us of your wonderful love that never ends, is always abounding. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.